Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today we have a. It's incredible. Superstar on the show. I am baffled in a way. Kate couldn't get over the fact that I booked Anthony Horowitz. You should just give it to the people right off front. Don't even drag that out. I was going to start. Anthony Horowitz. And now, perhaps for now, I'm singing a bad song. I I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was good, though. I thought it was like in between. That's fair enough. Um, I wasn't really trying. I was going to actually pull that thread a little longer and be like, this author has sold over 30 million copies. This author. This author has three books that have been turned into motion pictures. This author. But the thing is, is that for American audiences, I'm not sure Anthony Horowitz is actually like common parlance. True. He is, I would say he is a gem in the British crowd. Yeah, I mean, he's been knighted. Culture. Or whatever no, that thing is. OBE. Well, okay. And what we decided, we, we figured out what that was. We are very American and we had to Google OBE. We did. And we, but, but we Googled it's it It's an instead, officer of the British Empire. Instead of asking him, we Googled it. We decided it wasn't a very good thing to start the interview with. Yeah. But Anthony Horowitz, like, so his, one of his series, Alex Ryder, the Alex Ryder series. Which is launching today. On, today. On Amazon. On Amazon Prime. The, the TV show is launching on Amazon Prime. He wrote the both of the most recent Sherlock Holmes iterations. Moriarty is the most recent. He was also tapped to write for Ian Fleming. For Ian Fleming as for James Bond. For the new James Bond. And that book is Trigger Point. So let's just I mean the honestly he's, he's what? a modern day he, modern day, modern day. He, okay, he is the modern day Conan Doyle. I mean he absolutely is or Agatha Christie or or uh, or Travis Scott because he's got his hands in everything too. I would not have guessed that, but thank you for <laughs> expanding beyond my very narrow lane of what I was mentioning. Um, yeah, he is just the master of the whodunit. Yeah, and he Magpie Murders is probably one of his bigger hits over here in America. Mm-hmm. And he has a follow up to Magpie Murders coming out in November, which we are very excited about reading. And he also has, the sentence is death. 
and the word is murder. I read that one. Which are two fabulous books that he actually writes himself into. He he is quite the approach when it comes to his writing, which so it's not just the traditional, you know, clue board who done it, which Cluedo. Cluedo. It turns out that's what they call it in England, Cluedo. Quite charming, as most things are. And and one of the there. one of the interesting parts of our conversation with Anthony Horowitz is that he writes every single day and probably has for he'll confess in the interview how much time he takes off and it will blow your mind yeah you (laughs) you will you will be very surprised by that because we there's all different kinds of approaches from writers you know you'll meet some writers who's almost seasonal you know they they might absolutely even glenn and doyle put up a post um, a few Who weeks back during episode one of this season episode one of this season she wrote the amazing number one new york times bestseller untamed it's a memoir it manifesto perennial number one new york times bestseller because it's been number one for like nine weeks it's insane yeah, yeah it's kicking the booties. but that means yearly but the point is that mm-hmm. glennon put up a post the other day saying and i mean Obviously, if you have a number one New York Times bestseller, I'm sure you want to take a break. But she was saying how, like, you know, loves, like, don't worry if you're writing the great American novel during this time. You know, I haven't even written a single word yeah. throughout this. To and now that I say that loud, I know that's really not the best example because she is... The number one New York Times bestseller. Forever. Yeah. But anyway, there's all different kinds of approaches to writing is what we're saying. And it, it made us think of this really great... There's this fantastic book written by Stephen Pressfield and it's called The War of Art. And we're not confusing that. I know it's The Art of War, but this is called The War of Art. And he... It's just all these like little amuse-bouche size chapters. It's great to keep next to your bed. You don't have to read it in one sitting. But it's about resistance and and finding, stoking your creativity, basically, and all the resistance that stands in way of us achieving what we want to achieve. And there's this one little tiny page. This is one page. It's page 43. And the topic is resistance and being a star. And he says, grandiose fantasies are a symptom of resistance. And that's with a capital R, by the way. They're the sign of an amateur. The professional has learned that success, like happiness, comes as a byproduct of work. Mm-hmm. I think that line is so crucial. The professional has learned that success, like happiness, comes as a byproduct of the work, which Kate and I interpret that as, I think it's so easy to go after some kind of pursuit because you long for the results instead of the experience. And yet when you actually home into what it is that you know percolates underneath the surface that fuels you, the happiest we've ever been is when we're in the process. Yeah. And we still daydream about what may come out of it, but it's the concept of every day, both of us wake up scared at the prospect of sitting down and working on what we're writing. There is a fear. Mm -hmm. I would say a daily injection of fear when you're looking at that page and do computers even do this anymore? You know, where the, the little cursor would blink. I think that's an old computer yeah, thing. Do you I know what I'm talking that's about? That's a PC. It's like, like a, a Toshiba Sex in the City thing. from um, 2001 <laughs> up, college freshman bad. year. Okay, anyway. But I'm just saying, you know, that little, it's like the clock ticking in front of you, waiting for you to put pen to paper or finger pad to keypad. Um, and every single day, it's the same. It's what am I going to say? What am I going to write? How am I going to get these words out? And then fast forward to 30 minutes to six hours later, we're on top of the world. Oh, yeah. it's No it, one's read it. No one's seen it. And we're just so fulfilled. Yeah. 
And and the the thing that I find interesting about res- resistance with a cap resistance with a capital R like uh, in the war of art is that it's almost unlike anything else in that no matter how many days you sit down and you actually do the thing, the resistance doesn't lessen or go away. Mm-mm. You know, like if you work out a lot and you're someone who works out a lot, if you go and run a three mile loop in the beginning, it daunts you. But if you've done it for a year, there's a part of you that's like, oh, I, I've got this. And some of that fear lessens to the point where the joy may gap be, will always m- exist. may be commonplace, but like, Every morning, the idea of writing feels as scary as the first time you write. And so that is the, the resistance. And it's like, and it's so confusing because it's like, okay, when I go for a runner, my heart rate's like 160. That's actually literally painful for my body. Right. Whereas like, here I am, I'm sitting out back. I have my computer. Like there is no physical pain in my body that I can name. And yet it feels, sometimes it can feel like you're getting ready to go out to be tortured, even though while I'm doing it, (laughs) it isn't torture. So that's the resistance with a capital R. And it can be a special type of torture for sure. In the same way, for example, meditation is torture. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you say, Hey, here's this super fluffy cushion and I want you to rest your two little cute cheekies on it and just sit here and do nothing like, okay. Yeah. No big deal. Right. And yet you sit there and you try to clear your mind of these thoughts and it's just self-inflicted punishment because you're torturing yourself and punishing yourself for not thinking because you shouldn't be thinking. And that's the point of meditation. I mean, it's happened with you and I many times where you'll get up and you'll be like, I just can't right now. Yeah. No matter what I do, I can't clear my mind. But it does make me wonder with a writer as prolific as Anthony Horowitz, if, and we didn't ask him this, damn it, Anthony, we must talk again. But I wonder if they, if he feels any of this resistance right. when he sits down to work, because the way he makes it sound, I feel like that man is just continuously bursting at the seams with creative juice. It's yeah. just, he's like a, like a ripe Florida orange. Yeah. Squeeze me. And you can tell listening to him that even though he has had pieces of his work live out the grand fantasy... Or, right of being but turned I into a TV show. That's what fuels him. No, 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 no. I mean, you yeah. can tell. You guys, you'll be able to tell just from hearing how he describes his, his work and his process and his writing that, like, he's sitting down to write for like the nurturing fulfillment it provides him in the moment. Yeah, and I yeah. hope I know the season has been focused on writers and books and authors, but I, I truly believe that behind each author, all of the stories that they're telling are so applicable to whatever it is that's going on in your life and, and what you want to grab and what you want to go after. So um, let's bring on Anthony. Anthony Horowitz I know, I is on the show. It. I can't believe it. From Jam- London. He's probably eating a jammy dodger. I called him on my phone and it probably cost a fortune. We'll get that bill. Okay. <laughs> Anthony Horowitz is the author of the New York Times bestseller Moriarty and the internationally bestselling The House of Silk, as well as the New York Times bestselling Alex Ryder series for young adults. As a television screenwriter, he created Midsummer Murders and the BAFTA-winning Foils War on PBS. He lives in London. And he has an OBE. We are now joined by Anthony Horowitz, and we are so excited. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. So we wanted to start just by seeing how the last couple months have of this worldwide pandemic have affected maybe pros and cons of how it's affected either your process or work or writing. What do you see as the, the good and the bad of, of how this has affected you? Well, 
first of all, I mean, it's mainly bad. I must be honest with you. The notion of so much unhappiness out there, of people losing their loved ones, and of the National Health Service doing such extraordinary work and sacrificing themselves for the common good. The world picture is a very unhappy one. But in terms of my work, um, well, on the plus side, I've worked very well. I mean, I don't quite know why, but I seem to be very much more... Um, creative in a way than I have been for a long time. I mean, in, in the sense that ideas are flowing in and, um, and I know that what I'm writing seems to be good. On the negative side, I do find it difficult to maneuver my way through the day. I've had this uh, conversation with other writers. We're used to working in a more intense sort of way, you know, where you, you grab the moment and you work very, very, in a very focused way for an hour or for two hours. But now, it's 12, it's 24 hours, because there is nothing except the work. There is nothing in the outside world. So it's both, there are, there are some silver linings to the situation, uh, but broadly speaking, I would say uh, this has not been a very happy eight or nine months. Yeah. You, you mentioned there just the, the concept of ideas flowing in. I'm curious, as someone who's listened to a lot of, like, Ann Patchett, Elizabeth Gilbert, writers who have this theory that ideas exist outside in the world and certain writers, if you don't listen to if them, you don't grab them. Yeah, if you don't disappear. listen to them the moment they kind of appear to you or as they're knocking that's, that's, at the door. You, you put your finger exactly on it. Writers do not, I mean, you know, the joke is that all writers have been in self-isolation all their lives. And that is true of me. <laughs> yeah. I have been on my own in this room for pretty much 30 odd years. Um, but the truth is, is that you are connected to the outside world, to the energy, to the buzz, to the humanity, to the good things and to the bad things, to news happening, and not just news about, about hospitals and about uh, isolation and masks and Donald Trump or whatever it may be, about sort of the, the world with all its sort of cylinders firing. And so, so much is happening, and writers are connected into that. And if you take away those connections, you are left in a very, very strange place. But to give you an example of what I was saying in my first answer, I have been, you know, in order to support young people in, the, in, in Britain, to give them something back into, the, into this sort of chasm, I've been writing a new Diamond Brothers story, which is a, a, a story full of jokes. It's, this is my strand of, of why fiction, it's just bad joke after bad joke. <laughs> and what I found really bizarre is, no matter what I'm feeling, the jokes have just been flooding in. And those four, those four chapters, which are free of charge, are online on my, on my website, anthonyhorowitz.com. And I am really proud of what I've done. I haven't written a Diamond Brothers book for, for 10 years, and then suddenly out it all pours. So that, I suppose, is what I'm trying to explain, the sense of dissonance and destruction versus somehow in all of this, you know, a, a creative uh, juices flowing. Mm-hmm. And as someone with your prolific career, it seems like your juices must be always flowing because it, it, at least from outsider perspective, it doesn't seem like you're ever running out of ideas. And I can absolutely see what you mean when you're as a writer, not out in the world, maybe not getting the same inspiration that you would. I mean, or maybe, getting it in a different place. Sure. Different maybe we can expect the mystery of the egg sandwich coming from you <laughs> soon from being the mystery of the mystery of the egg sandwich, so, perhaps just making one of your diamond <laughs> brother jokes. Well, yes. I, I'm trying to keep up. Well, <laughs> no, she, as to what comes next, I don't know. I think one thing you will not get from me is uh, a description of this period we're going through. Yeah. The one thing I think I will never find myself writing about. I mean, the funny thing is, 
I will be honest with you. I have thought to myself, well, I could do a really good murder story set around a Zoom call, you know, where everybody <laughs> yes. is on your screen. So you've got one of those little boxes, somebody gets killed, and another of those little boxes contains the murderer. And how do they get from the little box in Maine to the little box in New York in the blink of an eye to commit the crime? And I thought to myself, there is something quite fun to write there. But broadly speaking, I'm not particularly wishing or inspired by uh, to, to write about, about, the, um, about the times we're in. Well, clearly what you're doing is working. And if I seem a little discombobulated, that's your fault because <laughs> I can't go to sleep because I'm in the middle of magpie murders right now. And um, I think I can say things without giving anything away. A manuscript within, it's a mystery within a mystery and all these twists and turns. And you, sir, are to me a bit of a mystery within a mystery. You're a mystery writer, but you seem to be this fascinating enigma yourself. And the, there's this bit of... Um, Virgil Dante thing that you have going on when I read your last book and you wrote yourself into the story. And if your goal is to have the reader go down the Google machine after reading your books and trying to figure everything out, it works because I truly could not figure out what was fiction and what was truth. And I love that about your writing. It was that kind of the intention behind it to can beautifully confuse well, us along the way. <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you for those kind remarks. Um, I don't think I'm much of an enigma. I'm a writer. I just sit in a room and I write. <laughs> but here is the thing. I'll tell you what connects magpie murders with the word is murder, sentence is death, and indeed with our moonflower murders, which is my next star who done it, coming out in, in the fall. And it is this. I love illusion, magic. I love puzzles. I love tricking people. I, I love anything that isn't what it seems. Mm -hmm. And in writing murder mysteries, which is something I've come to, I mean, I've done it all my life for TV. I used to write Agatha Christie's Poirot. I've done Foyle's War. I've done Midsummer Murders, many, many mysteries on TV. But coming now to write them in books, my one determination is to do things that have never been done before, to take them the form of the murder mystery, which is a form I particularly like. There are many, many writers, particularly in the golden age of detective fiction, who I, whom I have loved to read all my life. But to, to try and find something that really takes you by the seat of your pants and surprises you. Mm -hmm. So, so all the three books you have mentioned have done things that have never been done before. One of them is to to have the narrator the author to be the narrator inside the book, which changes everything. It completely turns the whodunit on its head because normally the author is the person who knows the most, who knows everything about the plot, who knows who the killer is before the first word is even written. But if the author is inside the book, of course that author is ignorant and knows nothing and doesn't even have a book unless his detective solves the crime. So that sort of turned the whodunit in the head one way. But the magpie murders and moonflower murders with the idea of a book inside a book allow you to both enjoy two whodunits, because uh, each one contains two completely separate murder mysteries, but also to look at the whole process of writing a murder mystery and, and to look at the, the sort of just the way the form and the structure actually work. So that, too, I think, is quite an original way to write murder mystery. And, you know, what this all comes down to is a thought I had many, many years ago, which is that as much as I love murder mysteries and writing them and reading them and watching them on television, I think it is possible to use the genre and to use the form to do something different, to give something, to give the reader more than the butler did it. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to give, you know, so you get the puzzle, you get the pleasure of it, the clues, the suspects, uh, you know, the twists and the turns and all that. But also, but at the end of the day, there is something more to the book than just that. And that, I guess, is what I've been trying. It's what I was doing in Foyle's War, and it's what I'm doing now. 
It, it's so delicious and it, please keep doing it. Um, so speaking of classic mystery, when you were originally approached by the Conan Doyle estate to, uh, you were commissioned to write Sherlock Holmes, speaking of the most famous detective possibly ever written. A, yeah, how, how would you use that genre to do something different? To it, yeah, did you amazing? really want to shake it up or because obviously that's hard to do because it's Sherlock Holmes and you have to be loyal and yet you're Anthony Horowitz, so we expect you to shake it up. Well, there, there are two answers to that. I mean, there are two books I read. The first was The House of Silk and the second one was Moriarty. Now, The House of Silk, which was a pure homage to Sherlock Holmes, to Doyle, to his writing, I didn't want to shake anything up because mm-hmm. my job was to, to write a book that, that Doyle himself might have written. In other words, to be anonymous myself. It's the exact opposite of the word is murder, where I am a character in the book. In The House of Silk, I have to be invisible, both as the author of the book and as a voice within the book. It is Doyle, and it is, it is, it is Watson, and it is Holmes, and I am not part of it. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very true to what Doyle had written. Now, the plot of The House of Silk is quite a modern plot. It is not something that, that, that Watson would ever have written. Then I came to Moriarty where I really was feeling a little bit more devilish, because here, having done what I considered to be the best work I could, writing a Sherlock Holmes story, this time I took some of the characters in the Holmes books, but not Watson and not Holmes, and did this time do something very tricky indeed. Um, The the book is called Moriarty. It is about the most evil man who ever existed. And all I can say is my determination from the start was to write an evil book. That's what it is. So... Across your different genres, books, YA to Sherlock Holmes to, to the to the Bond, did you do you plot all of them in the same way? Is there a strategy that you deploy that is kind of universal across your books, or is it different depending on the genre? Well, it's I think pretty much the same. I mean, funnily enough, I've just thought up the plot of the next book I'm going to write, and what happens is this: is that if it's, a, if it's a book that's been commissioned, like a, a James Bond novel or a Sherlock Holmes story or, 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 or even a, a new Hawthorne now, you know, I know what the parameters are. I know I need to write a murder. I need to, and so I start thinking, well, who's going to get murdered? What's the motive? What, and as, I, as I'm doing other work or walking around London or, or just lying in bed at night, um, I'm always just turning over in my head, but pretty endlessly, like 24-7. The, these questions, you know, what what can I do that hasn't been done before? What what's a you know basically murder mystery is a very simple formula. One person kills another person for a reason, mm-hmm. and once you've got that A B C, one person, another person, and the reason why A kills B, you've 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 got your murder mystery. And so I spend hundreds of hours toying on that little formula and trying to come up with. Interesting people doing interesting murders for interesting reasons. So, for example, the murder that begins, the, the word is murder, as far as I know, has never been done before. The reason why, um, I get her name now, Diane, not Diane. Oh, um, she goes the, in the, to plan her own is, funeral. Is, yeah. uh, whoever she has killed. You know, a lady walks into a, 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 <laughs> an undertaker's a funeral parlor, goes home and somebody murders her. And those two things are connected, but how? And that, no. to me, is the pleasure of it. I mean, if I sound like I'm boasting down the phone to you, I don't intend to. I merely no. get very excited about these ideas. I'm not saying they're the best ideas ever created or that I'm the best writer. But for me, writing as much as I do, I've got to have that sense of excitement and high. Hey, this has never been done before. And yes, this will surprise people. Or in fact, it, it may have been done before, but I'm going to do it differently. And, and so, so that's what gets me going. And once, 
Once it clicks, once the idea falls into place, then I start chasing it. I do the research. I start structuring the book. I start thinking about the other characters. I think about the red herrings. I think about the whole world in which it's going to take place. And, and then I begin to write. As, as I was reading Magpie Murders, when we go from the original manuscript, the, the book that the reader thinks they're reading, and then it actually flips itself on its head, and we realize that we're with the publisher and the editor and the author there. Um, I was wondering when the, I believe it's the, the editor starts to write down all the potential people who could have actually been the murderers. And she writes down mm-hmm. all the reasons that they could have been. And as I was reading it, I was just thinking, wow, I wonder if this is Anthony's writing process. Does he take every character and give, I mean, because it, it's so, it's like you just dissected it in such a beautiful way, showing all the reasons that each person could have done it or not done it or why it's too obvious. So it can't be this because it's way too obvious. And I just sometimes feel like with these books, we're, we're climbing into your brain and the process of how you create. There is a lot of that in Magpie Murders, Catherine, and and I and it is true that 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 that, that is sort of how I work. To be honest with you, when Susan Ryland sets out all the different people and and why they might have done it, what I'm really doing there is because this is quite a complicated book. Indeed, it's two complicated books that are interweaving with each other. <laughs> I'm actually trying to help the reader a little bit by just giving them a shopping list and showing where we are now. That shopping list is also quite useful because I can use it to deflect attention from the real killer and make make you think more that it's another killer. So it has a double purpose. But in terms of the actual creation of the book, I don't sit down and write sort of seven characters and give them all a motive and say this is what they're doing. The book, I always think to myself that my books form themselves a little bit like a flower blossoming. Hmm. But you start with your core idea, A plus B equals C. One person kills another for this reason. And from that, everything sort of opens out. So, you know, if, if, a, if a woman is murdered for, for a reason, then you start to think, well, was she married or wasn't she married? If she was married, you've now got the husband. Who is he? What was his connection to this lady? You know, assuming he's not the killer, what is his story? What makes him interesting? What was their relationship? So now you've got him, but maybe he was seeing somebody else on the side. Maybe he had a mistress. So then you, you you um you then go to her or to him it might be I mean whatever and 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 expand in that direction so I always think of it as a bit like a flower blossoming and more ideas fall in and it'll suddenly occur to me hey it would be quite fun if this character had this secret or whatever and that'll sort of fold itself into the sort of mix but but it isn't it isn't it is a sort of a um it is a an evolving process rather than a sort of a, a more rigid mathematical one. Since we're sticking to, I mean, we're talking about process here, I'm going to stick to it because I read somewhere that you write longhand in a notebook for your, for your drafts. And I, I, I listened to Neil Gaiman talk about doing that as well. And, and he had this interesting idea that he said that he felt like writing with like a fountain pen, writing longhand, like it changed the rhythm and the flow of his writing. And I was, you know, I don't know how much writing you've actually done longhand versus laptop, or if you've noticed a difference in the, in the, the effect on you in those different mediums and how you write. Um, I've always liked a fountain pen for many, many reasons. The first thing is, is I think fountain pens are very beautiful instruments. Mm. And I love the way the ink flows through your hand, almost like blood. I always say that, the, that all writers have blood that is colored blue. Uh, we are the original <laughs> blue-blooded stock, um, like the aristocracy. Um, and 
I like the idea of being very, very close to the words. If you type out a word on a, on a computer screen, it's going through zillions of connections inside a metal box before it actually appears. And even then, it's only virtual. It doesn't actually exist until you mm. print it out on a paper, which means sending it down a wire to another machine. Whereas when you write, it is you and the piece of paper. There's something very intimate about that and something very attractive about it. I also like the fact that all the writers that I most admire, who tend to be 19th century writers, used ink. And although I never compare myself to them, I like to walk in their shadow, to be like them. Um, and uh, I've always been very much a one about the physicality of books. Books themselves are not just a collection of words. They are objects of beauty. And I think that, 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 that handwriting is in its own way, even though my writing is not that lovely. But there is something <laughs> very, very attractive about a handwritten page. And in my office here in London, which is where you're talking to me, I have you know, literally hundreds of, of, of um, files um, or, or old notebooks full of my novels, all handwritten. When I'm dead, there are two universities who want to have them. So they're, they're they are going to be very lucky to, to get those collections. Um, well, I'm not sure about that, to be honest with you. And, and it sort of, I mean, it doesn't amuse me sometimes when I'm writing. I think sort of, of course, one day an archivist somewhere might actually look at this. And I always put a little doodle in just for him or for her. <laughs> so... I'm going back to my theory that you are still a bit of enigma. So, and, and you know, Anthony, let me have it. I think you're an enigma wrapped in a mystery sandwich. Um, egg sandwich, I egg, guess. Egg sandwich, evidently. But I was reading one of your bios. And again, when I was reading it, I couldn't tell if you were being serious or not. But you, you talk about your upbringing and your father being a very secretive man and something about a Swiss bank account. And, and there was a half million dollars curried by you across the city on a half motorbike. Half a dollars. You don't know how much money was lost. Yes. Um, is I this true? I'll yes. tell you what the enigma is as far as I'm concerned. The enigma is that I've been successful as a writer given where I came from. Okay. I had a, you know, I, I, I had a very wealthy, very privileged childhood, and I don't like to hear myself complain about it because there are many, many hundreds of thousands and millions of children around the world who are hungry and who are poor and who are unhappy. But I always say that, that rich kids can be unhappy too. And I was. I, I was a failure as a child. I had a very peculiar family. I, had, um, I was sent to a really abusive and unpleasant school when I was uh, barely eight years old, where I spent five very unhappy years. And this did a lot of damage to me. And the one lifeline through all of this circumstance, the one thing that kept me going and made me think that there even was a reason to live was story. It was in books that I read in the library and in the writing that I began to do when I was 10 years old. And discovering my ability to tell stories convinced me that I had a reason to be alive, to be on this planet. And it is all I have pursued now for the 60 odd years that I've been knocking about. And uh, so, so, you know, yes, there were mysteries around me. I mean, I still to this day, can't tell you what my father did for a living. I don't know. I'm fairly sure that it was not entirely legal, uh, not all the time. Uh, he certainly had some very, very shady associates. Uh, there is the story of the fact that he managed to lose, to hide, that is to say, maybe two million dollars or three million. I don't know how much money there was involved. Again, we never found the money, so I can't tell you. Uh, and to go from sort of wealth to having nothing, pretty much, was an interesting experience in itself. But the point, I think if you look up my writing, my first 10 children's books are, are largely autobiographical. They, they sort of, they play on the sort of the riff of the sort of the unhappy rich kid with weird parents in big houses. 
And they did okay, and those books are still in print to this day. But it was when I dropped all that, when I just gave up talking about myself and began to write about Alex Ryder, and then later on Sherlock Holmes, Bond, and the other murder mysteries, that I actually found myself as a writer. So, mm. so, so as kind as your question is, your observation about me being an enigma wrapped in a riddle or whatever it may be, <laughs> I just think I went to work on that, okay? And, very, and a lucky one to have survived. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so, when you mention writing as a lifeline, a lot of things I, I've read leads me to believe that you've never really taken long breaks from writing. Maybe maybe that's right or, or not right. What is the longest you've gone without writing? You know, some writers will tell you they'll go, sometimes they'll go three months where they just kind of put it on the back burner and, and live oh, life. Oh, you must be joking. I've, there is barely a day in the year, maybe hardly ever even one day in the year when I don't write. Wow. Um, I write every day. I'm always working on something. Today, for example, I've been rewriting... Um, 12 scripts that have to go out to, uh, to America. Uh, I've also had conference calls on, on Moonflower Murders, and I have been writing my next book, which I mentioned I, I've begun to think about. And I haven't done much writing on it, but I've been researching it. I'm in that phase now. So I, can't, I simply can't sleep if I don't write. And, and I love writing. I mean, one, one, one thing that hasn't changed in my life is that from the moment I discovered I was, was going to be a writer and was only a writer, um, I've always written. And so even if I'm not writing something which is, you know, a major, like a major novel or a major or something like that, I'll find something else to write. And, um, you know, I have notebooks as well, which I, which I scribble stuff down in if I fancy it. I'm at the moment writing this story online. I mentioned it to you at the beginning of this mm-hmm. conversation. And, yeah. uh, and I'll do a bit of that tomorrow. I've, actually, I've got to do it tomorrow because I've got to post another chapter of the weekend. And um, so, so between contractual ob- obligations and a busy diary, and a sheer passion for writing, I never take time off. Oh, actually, I'll tell you one thing I do. When I finish a novel, a big novel, I definitely do not write anything the following day. Just one day. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a marathoner who takes the next morning off of work. I like that, (laughs) of running. Well, that leads me... So as someone, as you you said, who, who bleeds blue that would insinuate that that very this writing very much is your life force but how how do you relax what what is your um, well i don't want you to get the idea from this conversation that i'm somebody who is just doing nothing in his life except writing because of course i have friends i have i have family i'm very luckily have been married to, to, for 30 Gosh, I'm going to get this wrong now. 33 years or something like that. Uh, and, and, uh, and I have two wonderful sons, so I spend a lot of time with my family. I have a house, a little tiny house in a place called Suffolk on the east coast of England, where I go. I'm not allowed there at the moment, unfortunately. I miss it very much, mm. but where I go for very, very long walks with my dog. And, you know, for me, a walk is a wonderful opportunity. I talked a little bit about the working process, about turning over ideas in my head. It's great to be able to do it when I'm walking with dog and, and strolling there. And then I can turn off and, I, you know, if I come to a beautiful spot, I can sit and look at it for half an hour. And that is relaxation, looking at a, a you know, a flock of wild geese taking off for the winter or, or seeing the avocets or the oyster catches in the, in the water. That sort of thing is, it gives me enormous pleasure and such. I read, of course. Um, I, I go to the theater, I go to the cinema. Um, so, you know, I, I, I always say, but look, if you, if, you, if you allow me to write for, say, 10 hours a day and sleep for six hours a day, that still leaves eight hours a day for plenty of other nice things yeah. to do. I've probably got the math wrong there yeah. as well. So. Um, we're, we're excited for Alex Ryder. Will you kind of let us in on the, the challenge or the process as a writer of turning or bringing something from the page 
to the screen? What do you what do you like about it? What are the struggles in it? The answer to your question is this. First of all, I did not write the new TV series of Alex Ryder Point Blank. That was a writer called Guy Burt, right. who I think has done a very, very good job with the scripts. I was an executive producer and very much in the back seat. The reason being that while the show was being made and written and filmed, I was working on Nightshade, the new Alex Ryder novel, and couldn't do both at the same time. Um, so... For me, the process has been one merely of sort of guiding it and checking that the the, the series is sort of true vaguely to the books. And I think you just have to accept that when you take a book and turn it into television, you're not nailing something to a wall. It's going to be different. It's an interpretation. Things that you love go, and things that you may not love so much come in. Um, A lot of it is down to budget. A lot of it is down to what can and cannot be filmed, what is possible, what is not possible. in terms of the Alex Ryder series, I haven't seen it all yet. I've only seen four episodes out of eight. I did love those four episodes, and I did think that although the TV series is much more adult than the children's books that I wrote, which are really for sort of, you know, eight to sort of 15, 16-year-olds, um, I thought that they had nonetheless not alienated the uh, earlier audience and had hopefully reached out and will continue to, 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 to reach a, a broad audience. I have to remind myself, I've been writing these books now for 20 years, and Mm -hmm. people who read those books when they were 12 are now married. Some of them have children. They're in their first jobs. They are adults, and I hope the TV series will appeal to them too. So speaking of being in a relationship with Alex Ryder, like you said, for 20 years, and I know every writer is different with the relationships with their characters, but um, as we both write, and and I I just wrote my my first novel, and I... (sighs) I have such a deep relationship with my characters and I know it sounds crazy, but I feel like they talk to me and that we have our own little conversations that nobody gets to know about. And I just am so intrigued by what it's like to have a character in your life for that long. And do you, do you, have there been moments where you're just like, Alex, it's, it's time for you to die. It's time to like give you a proper burial and respect. <laughs> or, <laughs> it's, funny, you know, it's something I've written about a lot, which I think it is quite interesting, but there are many great writers who had a very off-on relationship with their lead characters, the most famous we've already talked about. Conan Doyle disliked Sherlock Holmes so much, he threw him off the Reichenbach Falls to get rid of him, (laughs) and then he had to bring him back in very peculiar circumstances because he needed him to pay off his mortgage. Um, And and Ian Fleming also had a sort of a love-hate relationship with James Bond and killed him twice, really, once at the end of From Russia With Love and again at the end of You Only Live Twice, um, and always looked on him as sort of somehow embarrassing in a way. Um, uh, you could add to that also Hergé, another great uh, a love of mine, the creator of Tintin, who also felt very much sort of cowed uh, by his own creation. It's a wonderful cartoon. He drew a picture of, of himself, the writer, being beaten with a whip by Tintin, his creation. <laughs> I've never had that relationship with Alex Ryder. I've continued to like him, and I always enjoy going back to his adventures, and I've now done 13 books about him. So I wouldn't have done that if I didn't find him an enjoyable character to spend time with. Um, I do sometimes envy him. I mean, in the 20 years that I've been writing uh, about Alex Ryder, I've got 20 years older. He's got um, 12 months older. So that strikes me as a little bit unfair. And uh, also, I think he has probably a, a more enjoyable life than I do. He gets 
amazing adventures and sort of, you know, is constantly saving the world. I'm sitting in my room writing stories. So I have a certain envy for him. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm very fond of the character. I'm not like you, Catherine, in the sense that I do not have conversations with him. I feel <laughs> that my relationship to Alex Ryder and, for that matter, to Hawthorne or to, to Susan Ryland in, in the, in the um, Magpie Murders and, and Moonfire Murders is that I am more of a Watson character. I'm in the room, I'm listening, I'm writing down, but I am not particularly participating. So before we get to the, the quick hit questions, I just had a, a short one. I, I want to know, what does it take for you in, in your mind when something's an idea and then it starts to mature into something more? When do you know that it's going to be a book? Are there? I'm assuming there's a lot of ideas that get thrown out or, or maybe there aren't. Maybe it's just that you keep working on one. How does that process work for you? I, okay, it's interesting. I had um, this idea for this new book, which I've been working on now, thinking about for three or four months. And I just kept, I must have had about 30 ideas, 40 ideas. Mm. And each idea that lands in my head stays there for a certain amount of time. I, I bat it around. Imagine a sort of a, you know, a marble bouncing around in my skull from side to side and not going away until the moment when I realize that it doesn't work for some reason. And then, it, and then I just have to just let it go. I, you know, there comes a moment when you just... The Windflower Murders, the new, the new book I've just written, I had a whole murder mystery uh, uh, about it. I'll even tell you what it was. The idea was, was the main character, and he does appear in the book, a man called Frank Paris. Um, and my idea was, was, and it was a lovely trick I was going to play on the audience, was that Paris would be spelled P-A-R-R-I-S. Mm -hmm. But actually, the man that the killer wanted to kill was going to be P-A-R-I-double-S. In other words, it's a mistaken identity. And that trick is right in front of you. Paris, Paris, two different ways of spelling it, and the wrong person is killed. <laughs> but, and I worked on that for, oh, I guess about 10 weeks, thinking about that and building it up and beginning to flesh it out. And I suddenly realized at the end of 10 weeks, it's not working. You can't make this work. It's just, it's too difficult to, to, to trick the audience. It's too far-fetched for the killing. It just doesn't work. And I threw it out, and the moment I did that, the moment it went out of my head, the actual murder mystery that I have written came into my head. It was almost mm. as if one door had to open and, and somebody had to leave my head for the next door to open and someone else to come in. And I think that sort of gives you a good description of it. Mm -hmm. In the other book I'm writing, for a long time I couldn't get it to work, but I liked the idea so much that that I just researched it and researched it and finally found a way that it would actually work. And this, so this time I've been able to stick with it. But that, it's that sort of process. It's testing it. It's fighting it. It's wanting it. It's, it's, it's shaping it. And then finally realizing you can use it or you can't use it, but not being too upset when you, if you realize you can't. Because the moment it's gone, another idea will take its place. Mm -hmm. So, Anthony, we have a, a few questions for you that we ask all of the authors that come on the show, just quick little fun questions. But I, I, I would be amiss if I did not bring this up. I'm assuming at some point in your life you've played the board game Clue before. Oh, yeah. Have you ever? Yeah, of course, Cluedo. We call it Cluedo over here. Oh, oh. It's really? Clue in America and Cluedo in England. Really? Whoa. Wow. I didn't yeah, learn something you new little, every day. <laughs> you see, that instantly, as I say that to you, just to give you an idea how my head works, that's also a clue. But if somebody is in a murder mystery and they refer to the word to a game as clue, we now know they're American. Little tiny things like that stay oh. in my head. A little thought. But yeah, anyway, what about clue? clue? Well, no. to continue on the American side of things, have you ever watched the, the film based on the board game called 
Clue, also called Clue. I do think I saw it quite a long time ago. Yes, I, it's I, easily I, 25 I, years yeah. old. Yeah. Maybe, actually, it's probably longer than that. It is one of my favorite movies growing up. And whenever I tell people that Clue is my favorite movie, I, they there's give some, me a there's look. There's some scorn. There's some derision. And I feel that if anyone could commiserate with me, perhaps it could be yeah. you that but you think it's a good movie. I don't know that it's his favorite movie. It didn't sound like it was his favorite, Catherine. Well, I don't want to be rude to you, but my memory is that it wasn't one of the films that I most loved. That's right. <laughs> That's right, Anthony. That's that right. particularly well. But <laughs> look, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of like, listen, I'm remembering it vaguely 20 years later. So no, you're right, Anthony. Bad. You're right. It wasn't very Madeline good. Madeline Kahn, no. wasn't it? Come on. You don't get better than yeah, Madeline Kahn. Yeah, Madeline Kahn. Kahn all those yes. stars. That's right. Right. It was a great cast. Okay, we'll move on. If I, you I... saw a recent <laughs> film called, um, what was it called? Knives Out. Yes, great. That was great. quite similar in, in, in its very tone similar and in energy. Sort of construction to that earlier film. Exactly, yep. which we loved to that. We actually. It was the well done version of Clue. That's right. Oh, no. brutal. Get, okay, it, fine, fine. All right, so we'll move away from Cluedo. Um, Anthony, what was the last book you read? The last book I read was, I'm actually in the middle of a trilogy. So it would have been the second part of the trilogy that begins, well, the, the first one is The Power of the Dog, which is okay. Don Winslow's trilogy about the drug wars in Mexico. Okay. okay. Um, what I book, don't know if you oh. know them. They're extremely violent, tough. Don't stories know. about narcos and about the sort of the the, the DEA and the, and and the people fighting uh, drug wars. Uh, it spans about I think thirty odd years, and they are epic books. And Don Winslow is a and I I am I am embarrassed and shocked. It's taken me so many years to discover his work. But I read the first one, uh, Power of a Dog. Then the next book I read was called The Cartel, which was the second in the series. At the moment, I'm reading The Frontier, which is the third and final part of the trilogy. And I've already bought uh, the next book in a, uh, of a series, which is, I've forgotten its title, it's a very strange title. But, uh, oh, here it is here on my desk. It is called The Winter of Frankie Machine. So that's the next one, okay. which I'm going to read. I'm having a Don Winslow extravaganza. <laughs> um, if you were to move into a new genre of writing, what would it be? I'm sorry, if I could... Move into a new genre of writing, if you moved away well, from thrillers. Oh, gosh, I've written pretty much every genre there is to write. I think I would like to write one work of literary fiction. Mm -hmm. I have one book in my head, which is, which is not a big seller. It's not a major story. It's not got action adventures, murders, suspense. It is just a story of somebody's life. And that's a different genre. Mm -hmm. And that's the next book. That's a book I plan to write in the next few years. Um, out of all the books, any time period that have been written, is there one book that you wish you had written that it already exists? The thing was, I, I don't, I'm not generally the sort of person who feels that, but if I love a book, I would say, oh, I wish I'd written that. The book I probably most admire is Great Expectations by mm. Charles Dickens. Yes. And I wish that I could write a book as good as that. Um, and write a book as, as profound and as sad and as, and as brilliantly structured with such wonderful characters, twists and turns. It's a, it's a book I've always loved. Um, Sherlock Holmes or James Bond? Uh-oh, I think you're for asking what? the wrong person. <laughs> Just for what? Um, for to film a, a current Sherlock Holmes, to save the world James Bond, to have dinner with, <laughs> they'd both be quite awkward, I think, to have dinner with, to be honest with you. Um, to... to to have a drink with, I'll go for James Bond. Yeah, James Bond. diplomatic, good. And um, a question that we ask everyone who comes on the show, chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin? 
so easy to answer that one. Get that oatmeal raisin and throw it as far as you can. And get <laughs> the chocolate, chocolate throw it right cookie. into your... No, okay. I love oatmeal raisin, but that seems to be the consensus is that chocolate chip is superior. And do you have a, a favorite British biscuit? We recently, a few years, we go to London. I teach there every year and we learned about Jemmy Dodgers. Yeah. Which we call... Jemmy a, Dodgers are lovely. And, and if you've been to a you know privately educated... You can't fail to have a love of jammy dodgers because that's a cheap biscuit they always gave you. If I have a choice of biscuits, and I, I, I am a fiend for chocolate biscuits, um, <laughs> the good old the good old McVitie's chocolate digestive is still oh, pretty yes. much up there, particularly if chilled in the fridge oh. and served with a hot cup of tea. <gasps> Milk chocolate is preferable to dark chocolate. They're both are nice, uh, and uh, that's probably my number one choice. Okay. okay. We're going to go test that out. I'm going to go get my digestive biscuit and put it in the refrigerator. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for making the time. <laughs> but it must be McVitie's. I don't want to, to, to promote a brand down on... on, on McVitie's. But, uh, but that, that is the classic digestive biscuit. I am on it. Yeah. You have been so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anthony. And I'd like to apologize again about the difficulties of making this interview happen. It was it, I was mortified by, by the technical <laughs> challenges. But I, I, I hope that it's, it's all yes. recorded okay. And I want to say that it's been a total, total pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Anthony. So much. And good luck with the upcoming show. And we will be first in line in November with your new book. Thanks. Thank you very much. Have a good day and stay safe. Bye. Take care. Bye. And that was. There was Colonel Mustard in the conservatory it with was, the lead pipe. No, no, no. It was Professor Plum with the iron. It was Professor Plum and Mrs. White behind the curtain of it the was kitchen. Dr. Schwago <laughs> with the semi and okay, in the closet. The big takeaway, you guys, is everybody stop what you're doing. Yes, read Anthony Horowitz, but go watch Clue. Go watch Clue. It's Christopher Guest. It's Madeline Kahn. It's, it's, um... Oh. Don't be suckered. Don't be suckered into Catherine's no, it's pitch so for Clue. Good, and they have the old music too. Yeah, it's gonna shake, rattle and roll. Mm, I'm gonna shake, right? No, okay. So anyway, that's it. Go play your board games. Go read your whodunits. Go tune in to Alex Ryder on Amazon Prime TV. Anthony Horowitz was on the show. What? I know he was so lovely. He was, it's people is lovely. He was lovely. Anthony, we adore you. Thank you for your time. Thank you to Lindsay Collins for producing our podcast. We would be floating in a sea of clue weapons without you. And you provide the structure to our murders. There you go. You know, that's the way I think of it. You are the thread that ties it together that makes us understand. So we can drop the mic and walk away. Because that's what detectives do at the end. And that's what the listeners would hope we would do right now. And just like detectives <laughs> don't get paid, you know, like you read a detective novel and it's like, where do they have all this money? How do they have this like really nice loft? Um, well, maybe they have a Patreon. They like could us. have a Patreon account. We yep. have a Patreon account and that is how we stay advertisement free so that we can rattle on like this. As, and nobody tells us to stop. Because nobody. We, 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 nobody we say owns whatever us. we want. Nobody owns us. That's right. So it's patreon.com. Forward slash free cookies. Or you can find us on Instagram at free cookies podcast or on Gmail if you want to email us, free cookies podcast at gmail.com. Please follow at the Inky Phoenix as well. Yes, that is my book club. And 
Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts because it helps others find us. And a big thank you to two of these beautiful five-star reviews. Rolaf, you're the best. Rolaf, you're always so supportive of us. Thank you. And okay. <clears throat> K Doy sits it Z J F. Thank you to you. Thank you to you. I am going to solve this now. Are you going to read any of them, or K- just is that a little too self-indulgent? No. A little navel gazing. K does sit sit sit. All right, we're going to let the people go. <laughs> we're going to let them go because they've tuned in long enough. Um, Maybe it's an anagram. Oh wow. Keep going. That was like a dangling modifier. It was. We should let the people go now. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye, K Dunn Sits. It's JF. <laughs>